This is Dylan FM, the podcast that goes deep into the work and world of Bob Dylan. If you love Dylan, you're in the right place with your host, Craig Danuloff. Bob Dylan has been a solo performer relatively rarely over his long and active career, and very rarely if you skip over the first few years. Since 1965, he's played with well over 100 musicians on stage in a parade of nearly constant change. There's a webpage called Bob Dylan's Gigging Bands that lists all the names of who's played on stage with Bob Dylan. It's fascinating and fun. There's a link to it in the show notes. What does one learn when playing on stage with Bob Dylan? What can they tell us about the music and the arrangements and the performances? What can those people tell us about Bob Dylan? Imagine the stories these people could tell. Well, in large part, we don't have to imagine anymore because Ray Paget has been talking to them. For over two years, in a project that began for his excellent flagging down the Double E's newsletter and substack, Ray has been interviewing people who played with Bob or were somehow involved in the process of putting on Dylan's live shows. He spoke to nearly 50 of them and he assembled all of these interviews into a new book called Pledging My Time, Conversation with Bob Dylan's Band Members. And not surprisingly, it's full of great stories and interesting answers to Ray's intelligent questioning. Ray's got a deep knowledge of Dylan, the shows, the tours, and the events that these people were involved with, and it propels the conversation forward as he seems to always know what to ask, and to show them he's there for the details. The book is out now in paperback, hardback, and ebook. You'll definitely want to grab a copy. There are links in the show notes to help you do so. Who did he talk to? Here are some of the names. Ramblin' Jack Elliott, Jim Keltner, Scarlett Rivera, Rob Stoner, Regina McCrary, Larry Campbell, Duke Robillard, Winston Watson, Freddie Coella, Michael Soinbaum Portney, Ben Tench, and many, many more. Ray and I spoke last week just after pledging my Time's official release. I'd had just a few days with the book, but was already full of questions. Ray, as you'll hear, was ready to answer and share tons of great stories from the book and his conversations. We've even interwoven some of the audio clips from his original interviews in today's show. So you'll get to hear some of these stories in the musicians' own voices. Ray has been a guest here on Dylan FM a few times, sharing his knowledge of cover songs primarily, and he's soon to be the host of a new podcast on that subject for our FM podcast network. If you're hearing this, you're listening to the public version of this episode. There's also an extended version, they're usually about twice as long, available to FM Plus subscribers. You can sign up for just $4.99 a month and get the full version of this and all of our episodes, plus member-only episodes as well. And to make it a great deal, that one price covers all the podcasts in the FM Podcast Network. You get extended editions, bonus episodes, and full archives for all of our shows. Plus, your subscription makes these great episodes possible. Subscribe right in the Apple Podcast app and get the longer episode right now. Or, if you use another podcast player, visit fmpods.com to sign up. Now, let's hear our discussion with Ray Paget about his new book, 
Pledging My Time, Conversations with Bob Dylan's Band Members. All right, welcome, Ray Padgett. Thanks for joining us again to talk about your new, now number one best-selling, at least in your category on Amazon, book, which is called Pledging My Time. Uh, thanks for having me back. And yeah, the in your category is an important caveat. Music history books, uh, <laughs> not quite at the, you know, not going to be the next Harry Potter. Well, it's still, it's it's great. And everyone's talking about it and everyone's starting to, you know, have copies have dribbled out over the last couple of weeks and people are excited. And it's it's a great book. As I told you, I'm about two thirds the way through and I got pages of lots of yellow marks and pages of notes for us to talk about today. So uh, great accomplishment. I'm looking forward to talking to you more about it today. Uh, I appreciate it. Why don't you just tell us a little bit of how this came to be, meaning what, what I wanted to know, was this a kind of a lightning strike that you said, hey, nobody has talked to all these people and pulled it together? Or did you have one conversation and it kind of turned into another and slowly the idea uh, emerged? Because at the end, what is unique about this is no one's done it before. And that makes it very compelling for all of us who care about such things. It was definitely closer to the second scenario. You know, I started doing them for my newsletter. And at first I figured I wouldn't be able to do any because like people would have signed NDAs. Because as you say, many of these people have never really spoken before, or at least, you know, not beyond a platitude or two occasionally. And it was, you know, it was fairly hard to get, especially the first few, it's hard to get all, of them, especially the first few for the newsletter. But then, you know, I got a couple and then one led to another and people introduced me to other people. Um, and so, yeah, maybe when I had done, I don't know, 10 or 15 sort of substantive interviews that run the newsletter, that's when I started thinking, you know, there could be a book here if I get 40 or 50 of these together. And so I just kept doing them for the newsletter. But also at the same time, I sort of kept doing ones that I was just sort of secreting away for the book, you know, where I had sort of pitched them on this book. So there are a couple of these Ramblin' Jack, I think I talked like two and a half years ago, and I just kind of sat on it. Um, so so it's been it's been in the works for a while, but it wasn't really a flash of lightning, mostly because I didn't assume I could get this many as I've read it, I've tried to kind of think about the bigger picture because you can get lost in all the stories and all the, you know, tidbits that come out. And it, it seems to me it's interesting for a, a whole bunch of reasons. One is, as you say, there's this assumption, and I don't think it turns out to be assumption or this unstated bond of silence that the Dylan world has, or we've always heard or assumed. Number two is a lot of Bob stuff, you know, this kind of proximity issue. It seems like nobody gets close to him. And if they do, it's for a fleeting period of time. And which all leads to this, the fact we're also interested in this, which is 60 plus years of public life on, he's still generally a, a mystery. Kind of, I feel like there's this puzzle we're all trying to solve. And you've brought a whole bunch of other pieces to it. When you talk to them, were you, was there anything you wanted to unlock or what were the goals in each interview that you were seeking to do in the cumulative whole of the book? There was a lot I wanted to unlock. I mean, a lot of it is maybe first and foremost was what's the experience of playing music with this guy like? I mean, you know, we see what we see from the audience and as fans, but how do these new arrangements come about? Um, how do they, you know, when they're changing songs every night, how does how does that happen when they're not changing songs, but the arrangements are shifting every night? How does that happen? Um, so there's that sort of nuts and bolts musicianship stuff, one. And then two is like, what? What is it like off stage? You know, you hear rumors of like 
can't even look Bob in the eye or you'll get in trouble, you know, that sort of thing, which turns out mostly not to be true. Um, you know, most of these people had fairly good relationships with him offstage, some very personal and friendly, and they have all these amazing anecdotes of hanging out, some more professional, and they had a nice time, but they didn't, you know, chill on the bus too much in the off hours. But just, you know, that's the sort of thing that we have so little window into and that so few people have talked about. I was just really curious about, like, what is it literally like when you're on the road for nine months a year for four or five years with this guy who's fairly inscrutable? What is that life like? What do you do? And did you have any kind of rules you made for yourself in terms of personal life questions or you know professional versus Bob? I mean, you're you're clearly crossing a line. Not I don't think in a you know unprofessional way, but what were, how did you think about that in terms of the questions you asked? Uh, there were no rules, um, and never any rules agreed upon with the people either. I mean, the only rule really was what am I interested in? You know, and I mean, to some degree, I think what I'm interested in was helpful in getting these interviews because like I am interested in the music first and foremost. I'm not super interested in like Bob Dylan's personal life. Who's he dating? Like who's he sleeping with? I sort of just don't really care. So like, like for instance, one of the people in this book herself, she was a tour manager. She herself wrote a book a while ago and she has this sort of salacious story about my one night stand with Bob Dylan, you know, and it was probably good for her book promo. I got picked up the gossip rags and I could have asked her about that, but here, I want to know about what it's like being a tour manager on Rolling Thunder Review and putting those shows together and putting the tour together. So, you know, I think with some, with probably a lot of people, once they saw that that was sort of just my area of interest that helped them open up a little more. That was one of my favorite chapters that I've read so far, her and uh, it's Odell, right? And uh, mm -hmm. Jack Levy's uh, wife, I'm forgetting her first name. Yeah, um, Claudia. Claudia, th those were great. I'm glad you included the non musicians that are in there. Louis, Louis Kemp was good. Yeah, that's one of the advantages of, of having done some of these, some of these in the newsletter is that people reach out to me. Claudia Levy emailed me because I ran I, after one of them. I ran in my newsletter, Scholar Rivera, maybe. Claudia emailed me to say, "Hey, I was married to Jock Levy. I feel like his story has never really been told. You know, Jock himself passed a number of years ago. You know." And I was like, you want to you talk to me? And she was like, yeah. So like, we, you know, we got on the phone and talked for two hours. And I don't think she's ever been interviewed before. But it turns out not only was she married to the guy, but she was on the road, the entire Rolling Thunder review. And I never would have thought I didn't know she was. But, you know, that's sort of one leads to the next. That one's really great. And that, that is the other element of this is I think individually, many of these people probably don't get asked a lot. And people don't think, hey, I need to go get the, you know, story from the guy who played the congas on Hurricane or whatever it was. Um, and yet, A, they are, you know, there's mass there. They're interesting individually. And what you've done was just cool. is just when you aggregate them, it's the perfect venue for them. It's probably, you know, most of them wouldn't have filled a, you know, 50-page chapter alone a book. But uh, altogether, you get this beefy thing that, that tells something. Yeah, I, like, I, like I said in the intro, like, I, I know a lot, a lot of people, because I would do this too, you look at the table of contents, and like you want to jump to the people whose names you know, which I totally get. That's probably what I would do if I read the book. But I sort of say, the people whose names you don't know, who like you've literally never heard of, sometimes they have the best stories. Yeah. And that ultimately, what comes down to for me is, this is all first person. And, you know, we spend a lot of time with 
theories that some guy made up in his head or fifth generation stories. And, and there's very few. I made a list last night and there's about, you know, maybe six or seven kind of first person books that exist out there. And there's, there's the interview compilations, but there's really a small number of books by or, or deep information by people who actually spent time with Bob. And so, uh, and, and many of them aren't professional, frankly, they're, they're tell all tattletale kind of stories that go on the other side. Here's our first clip. This is Stan Lynch from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. I just thought of, I just thought every time he was in the room, there was this energy that was just, it was fun. Like I just went, that's what I kept, maybe I misinterpreted, you know, talk about a guy who can fucking read the room all wrong. That's me. But what I read was Bob was ready to have fun, have a good time, rock, play some music, don't stress, no posturing. Can we just make a joyful noise unto the Lord? You know, like, like that's what I felt whenever he was in the room. And every time he turned around, he would rock with me, man. That was my memory of like, you know, if I caught it, if I was catching a, a groove and the whole band was catching a groove, Bob did the, did all the things that you want your, your front man to do, man. He was like, you know, hips are swaying, his shoulders are moving. He's looking at you and he's pointing. And, and I loved every inch of it. So Stan's clip is is representative of a lot. Uh, actually, there's a, a bunch of quotes I've got later to talk to you about of a lot of the reaction about the core, core experience of playing music with Bob, which I found in what I've made it through is universally positive, is universally, uh, you know, respectful, reverent, uh, You haven't excited. gotten to the Duke Robillard chapter yet, clearly. The second to last. I, 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 I did, actually, I did. I read, I read forward and backward because of the way you did the time sequence. So we'll, we'll get to that. But you know what I'm saying? These people are mostly, you know, some of the quotes you mentioned about people who say you can only learn from standing next to him, right? They mean, they, well, you, you summarize the experience of being on stage with Bob in, in terms of either what Stan Lynch said or other things you heard, uh, right? That's the core of what no one's asked anyone before that you talked to a whole pile of people about. It was striking to me when I sort of put these together in aggregate, just how many of these musicians compared playing with Dylan to jazz, even though on a literal genre level, Bob Dylan is not a jazz artist, obviously, he's not Miles Davis. But, you know, I think so many of them found it refreshing and exciting to play, you know, even if the same song you're going to play it a different way every night, like Jim Keltner, I spoke to, and he, he was the drummer. I hadn't realized this, but, um, on the big Simon and Garfunkel reunion tour, I don't know, 15 years ago. And he, you know, he, he, he said he enjoyed it, but you know, they're playing the hits. He's playing them exactly the same way every single night. And he compared that to playing with Dylan, where every single night you're on your toes. It's challenging you as a musician. It's making you better as a musician. And, you know, a lot of these people in the book are sort of the musicians, musician types, studio guys, touring guys, like who really respond well to that environment. I mean, it can be challenging for others. You know, Marshall Crenshaw got fired before he even played a single show because he, as he says, his bass playing wasn't really up to the level of what Dylan was asking him to do. But for so many, that's sort of, you know, just, just life on stage rather than ever going through the motions they've found extremely valuable. And what conclusion did you come to about, I know one thing you really dug into is how he communicates with them, which seems like, it, it almost seems like this dichotomy between he knows what he wants, 
but he won't tell you, but he gets you there somehow. I think that's a good way to phrase it, because I was sort of surprised in two opposing directions. The one direction I was surprised in when I was doing these is just how extensive rehearsals are. For every tour, even if it's a tour with the same musicians, he rehearses. He did, he did a few days of rehearsals before this last, the current tour in Europe, even though it's the same people he played with in Japan a couple months before that. So there's these extremely extensive rehearsals. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, what you spend all this time rehearsing may have little to nothing to do with what you actually play live because he wants that sort of spontaneity. You know, there's another thing, Fred Tackett, who did guitar like during the gospel runs he was talking about, where during his era, Bob Dylan would uh, like assign him songs. Hey, teach the band Rainbow Connection, teach the band Night Moves, teach the band Sweet Caroline. That one, that one we've heard eventually in the other box set. And it wasn't that they, they were intending to play Night Moves on stage. It was that Fred's point was that it, he felt that Dylan was didn't want to go over like a Rolling Stone a hundred times and have everyone sort of lock into their parts. He wanted the band to gel, people to really be vibing and feeling each other with these other songs they weren't intended to play. And then it would be fresher when they, you know, played It Ain't Me Babe or whatever uh, in concert. How much did the frustration come through? I mean, we'll talk about the Duke Robillard issue later, but in anyone else in terms of, maybe it's an issue of if you're good enough, you don't need to be told. And if you need to be told, you're not good enough and you shouldn't be there. But, but there is a, a whole lot of, you know, he didn't tell me. There's that Miles Davis quote that you, someone cites about, you know, don't tell me what, tell me how, or maybe I did that backwards. Did anyone else complain about it? Did anyone else find it struggling or a lot of them found it invigorating? It, nothing was universal, but with a number of people, it sounded maybe invigorating with a side of frustrating. You know, 90% of the time it was invigorating and 10% of the time they were like, Jesus Christ, this is getting annoying. I mean, even like Larry Campbell, who had a very successful and long tenure with Bob, you know, told me that he said during his time, there was like a little space off stage that after the show, they would go for 60 seconds. And if Bob had something to say to them, he'd say it. And, you know, that could be frustrating because Dylan would say one night, I want X. And then the next night, Larry or whoever would play X. And it turned out that wasn't what Dylan would want anymore. Um, you know, and this is someone who had an extremely good and productive and, and long relationship with Dylan. So there, I think there is there is that, you know, inscrutable and mysterious is is cool, but can also uh, be frustrating if you are trying to give the give the boss what he wants, but you're not sure what it is. Um, at, at the recent Costello shows here, uh, Tony Garnier played one night and I got to talk to him uh, with Scott Bunn from Recliner Notes actually after the show for a few minutes. And a version of this question we asked Tony. Uh, which was, you know, does Bob come back and say, hey, let's do this, or however it was phrased to Tony. And Tony just leaned back and said, I don't think he's ever said that to me. (laughs) I mean, he was basically like laughing. I don't think I've ever got a direct do this, you know, kind of thing. And that's the longest relationship ever, obviously. In terms of the the day-to-day realities of working with him, like what, what's the, what conclusion did you come to or any stories that you think of that just kind of the mundane about, you know, life on the road, going to the show, working, there's, you know, these people go through a lot. We think about this 90 minute period, they've got the rest of the day and their lives, their lives to lead. You know, I, the book is sort of arranged roughly chronologically and it seems like it's sort of his varied by air. I mean, you can think on the one hand, if I have a bunch of interviews with Rolling Thunder review people and 
you know, they're on stage for two hours a night. And it seems like the other two, 22 hours, they're all hanging out with Dylan and going and filming zany scenes for Ronaldo and Claire. And it's just nothing but this big fun party, especially for the 75 portion. You know, so there's tons of hangout and they all are, you know, friends, you know, with, with the guy. And then, and then it varies, you know, and, and then I, I would say, you know, more recently, never ending tour era, it's a little more, it's a little more, you know, standoffish isn't the word, but just professional. You, you do the job and you do the work. But one thing that sort of struck me is even in some of those periods, you know, like I talked to Dickie Betts, who, from the Allman Brothers, who was not ever a you know, full-time band member, but has sat in a number of I mix sense of that. And he's talking about relatively, you know, within the last, I don't know, 15, 10, 15 years of Bob inviting him backstage. And there's the story where Dickie Betts punched some guy and he landed on Bob's lap. And so now every time Bob sees him, Bob like veins a punch at Dickie's face and says, Hey, Dick, how's your right cross doing? So, like, there's all these really personable, personable moments of these people kind of throughout. I didn't catch any of them that turned into close personal lifetime friends with Bob. Not that they will share. Meaning, it was, I mean, I'm sure that's, I'm sure that is true for most, for sure. But like, there was an interesting moment at the end of my Regina McCrary interview. She was someone who sang, who was the background singer for all the gospel years, right? And that was essentially it for her professional relationship, with the exception of she, she and her sisters were a singer group joined Dylan uh, several times on stage and I think 2010s to sing Born in the Wind. And so, you know, I was mostly asking about the three years they spent the road together, but I was like, hey, that's interesting how, how decades later this happened. And, and she basically indicated two things. One, that she and Dylan are still close. And the two, that was not something she wanted to talk about, which was fine, but, but sort of surprising. Again, as you say, I assume that people have their little chapters with him and then are sort of out of, out of his life. But Clearly not. She, cause, cause I was like, so how did you, how did you end, how did you and your sisters end up on stage like thirty years after you? And she's like, oh, I was just talking with Bob, and I said, hey man, can I, you still do blowing in the wind? Because you know we sing that now. I was like, oh, you like still talk? She's like, yeah, we talk all the time. I was like, oh, well, not what I huh. expected. <laughs> but but yeah, but but you know that sort of thing again, when it veers into personal life, people are you know I think fairly dark. There was this series of these kind of drop bys you know there was the noel stuckey one and there was a, a couple others that and, and claudia uh, had mentioned that you know for years or some period after the, the the working relationship we know about bob would drop by and and we you know the recent lenoir interview you know he talked about which you know now years later that bob called and wanted to play an album and came up this kind of bob calls out of the blue thing is something we do hear about conversely right he he keeps them in mind it might be a decade it might be two decades and he sh calls calls and shows up yeah my favorite story of that was i think in the harvey brooks chapter i mean harvey is a guy who played bass during some of the early electric stuff i was 61 some shows and then and then on new morning and then that was about it you know and then and i should say because it's important the story they hung out together in woodstock a lot in that late 60s, early 70s period. But, you know, 71 comes and goes and, and, you know, they go their separate ways. In the 80s, so we're talking 10 to 15 years later, Harvey is sitting at home with his family and a, a black car pulls up and who it is at his house and who should step out of the car but Bob Dylan, who he hasn't spoken to in ages. Um, but he still lived in the same place. Dylan just decided to drop by and I guess he was in the area, see if Harvey was around. And it ended up, you know, Harvey ended up 
playing him some albums he liked and Dylan took a few songs. Uh, this, this is actually, this is, I think late eighties, early nineties. Cause Dylan took a few songs from those albums, Arthur McBride and one other ended up recording them in, within a year or so. And this is, this is just this random drop by. And if, if Harvey wasn't home, I suspect he never would have known about it, you know, but he was home and, and Bob pulls up in his car and gets out and says, Hey, you want to listen to some music? Next, we have a clip. This is Fred Tackett, who played with Dylan in the Born Again years. My wife called me up at a session and said, hey, we got a call from Bob Dylan's office wanting you to come down and jam with him. You know, so it was great, man. And we did that for about three weeks. I was driving over every day in Santa Monica and just, uh, you know, going over mostly uh, his brand new songs. We just did that every day. And I remember uh, I was driving down the road and I thought, wow, man, like three weeks. I wonder when, you know, we're going to like get to, to the end of this. And then I said, is it clear that this is like an audition or that there's a tour? No, or... it's just like, can you come down and jam with us? I was like, sure. I want to come down and jam with you. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And I just kept thinking, well, fair, you know, what is the point of all? And I knew they were going to go out and do a gig. You know, I knew they were going out on tour. You know, because sooner all them, all the band was there, and but nobody was really saying much about it. And I mean, I was like starting to get a little frustrated. And then I told myself on the way down there, I was going, you know, there's fifty thousand guitar players that would love to go spend three weeks jamming with Bob Dylan and Jim Keltner. <laughs> you know, what are you what are you uh, griping about? The other th- recurring theme or or vignette that comes up in the book is. Bob rehearsing, pulling people in, trying people out. They don't know why, what it's for. Sometimes they turn into something. Sometimes they don't. Uh, there's other people, you know, who don't make it as far as they do. Uh, and then, you know, and then they get a call. Any other interesting stories that come to mind about coming into Bob's orbit and being asked to join? One thing that comes up a lot in these stories is people say, I didn't know when I was hired because I'll ask like, so like, when did, what did you, how did you get officially? And they're like, I was never officially anything. Like I just jammed with him for a few weeks and you know, his manager said, all right, we're going to France uh, next week. Do a plane ticket. I mean, the most dramatic one probably is this guy, Tony Marcico, member of the plugs who for Dylan fans, you know, they're best known as having backed Dylan up on that Letterman performance in 84, that great three song set. What I hadn't known before talking to Tony was that those three songs were the product of months of rehearsal. But it wasn't that we're rehearsing for Letterman. It was just that Bob Dylan was hanging out in, in California, wanted to jam with some young guys. Someone turned him onto the plugs, this sort of LA punk band. They just they went to his house every day for literally several months, just jamming and playing. And at some point, there was some sort of show in Hawaii that was discussed, and that never happened. There was some sort of tour that was mentioned and disappeared. Um, and then one day, you know, Bob was like, all right, hey, there's, there's some new late night show with David Letterman. We're going to play next week. You guys want to come do that? And so publicly to us, that's it for Dylan and the Plugs, these three songs on this one TV show. But it was really that they had spent all this time, again, as you say, rehearsing is almost too grand a word for it. They weren't, they were just jamming. They were like hanging out and playing music. And that that's an extreme example, but that sort of thing comes up a lot. Do you draw any conclusions from this process? This kind of, you know, come, come by, drop by, I'll try a few people, come go. 
I don't know. It's just, it, to me, it's very interesting about how he's kind of a bit happenstance. Like, you know, the guy's home, the guy's not home. The guy's, you know, Alan Pasqua's story about, you know, come tomorrow. It's like, I don't want to come tomorrow. And then I better come tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. There are a number of, a number like that, where it's like, if you get the call, you better show up when they say, otherwise it's just, he's going to move on to someone else. Um, yeah, it's like, it's like, I don't know. He doesn't want, he doesn't want commitment or anything. I mean, it were another interesting thing. I, heard several times was that even for band members who were there for years it was always like one tour to the next a tour would end and they'd be like well maybe i'll get a call in a month or maybe i'll never hear from him again you know that happened pretty often and you know then sort of people can come and go more easily but even the people who stick around it's not like all right you are you are in my band in sort of a formal official way it's like all right we're gonna do a run of dates To hear the rest of this discussion and the extended version of all of our shows, become an FM Plus subscriber. Sign up right in Apple Podcasts or at fmpods.com. Among the shows you'll find in our archives include dives with authors on quite a few great Dylan books, including Howard Soans on his biography, Down the Highway, Grayley Heron on Dreams and Dialogues in Time Out of Mind, Larry Starr on Listening to Dylan, and many others. Did you enjoy this show? Then please rate this podcast and leave a review. It really helps. And take a moment to follow this podcast so you don't miss upcoming episodes. Thanks for listening.